0: Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we're going to begin reading at verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him... All the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look into it, that our hearts would worship. That our hearts, uh, whether they need correcting or whether they need comfort or whether they need a reorientation, that our hearts uh, would be uh, focused upon you, that you would be pleased to receive this part of our worship. Pray that you would anoint my feeble lips and that you would perfect that which is very imperfect uh, by your Holy Spirit and quicken just that which is truly your word to the hearts and, Father, that the rest would fall to the ground. I pray, Father, that uh, this your people would be built up in your most holy faith. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the first point that's in your outline because in Acts chapter 2, we looked at the preaching and uh, dealt with some of the issues there. But if I was teaching in a seminary, I'd probably spend 15 to 20 minutes uh, analyzing the sermon. I wish that uh, seminaries would spend time analyzing the sermons that are in the Scripture rather than just the rhetoric that is outside of Scripture. But in any case, I thought it was at least worthwhile to remind you that the Bible has many different varieties and styles and formats for preaching. Now, some sermons were expository, some were synthetic, some were topical. There's at least one redemptive historical sermon. But nowadays, there is a a tendency for people to some people to get legalistic and think there 's only one way to preach, and I get this on the web all the time, especially from those who advocate the redemptive historical preaching. Uh, they really consider anything else but that to not uh, be preaching. If you want a great debate on this subject, um, uh, Greenville Seminary has published one between John Kerrick, a professor there, and um, uh, Denison. Uh, Denison from Westminster. I agree with Carrick's uh, approach. I disagree with uh, Denison's approach, but it's a very interesting uh, debate there. But uh, <coughs> you will find that every sermon in the book of Acts follows the principles that are laid out by uh, Greenville Seminary Professor John Carrick. Uh, It was a thematic communication of God's revelation that is applied uh, to life. In verses 34 through 35, Peter gives the overall theme of the sermon that God intends to save people from every nation. He then proceeds to develop his theme by way of explanation. Just reading the Bible is not preaching. Uh, Preaching has to have at least three things. It has to have Scripture, it has to have explanation of the Scripture, and then it has to have Application. Sometimes the application's up front, throughout. Sometimes it's at the end. But there's always application that is in there. Uh, some sermons have illustrations. Some do not. But anyway, in verses 36 through 38, Peter backs up what he says from the word of God that was spoken by Jesus. <coughs> uh, then in verses 39 through 41, he appeals to apostolic authority. That's God's revelation as well. Then in verses 42 through 43, he appeals to Old Testament prophetic authority. Now, he doesn't have to delve into that in depth because he says, you already know the word. He's reminding them of the word that he's talking about. Uh, He adapts it to uh, that audience. But then in verse 43, uh, having proved his point, he asks for a response. The response is, recognize that you are sinners, believe in Jesus. And then in verse 48, a further response of baptism. Now that in a nutshell is the essence of preaching. And I'm not going to dwell on it uh, further other than just to say if you run across um, reform blogs and other websites that just insist there's only one way to preach. Just ask them which sermons in the Bible follow their methodology and if there are any sermons that do not. Because there is enormous variety in the Bible because of the variety of the people, the variety of the needs uh, that uh, were out there. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to spend most of my time analyzing the gospel message that Peter brings. I think verse 43 is a wonderful corrective, not just to Roman Catholic legalism, but to legalism that is in the Protestant church uh, as well. On the other hand, verse 35 is a needed corrective to evangelical antinomianism. Antinomianism doesn't necessarily mean they don't believe in the law, but they neglect the law in their philosophy. They neglect it. And we're going to look at some other errors. I am convinced, and having read extensively in this area, that some people have so distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ that if somebody were to preach this without attributing it to Peter, that um, they would consider it not only bad homiletics, but horrid theology. And obviously, I haven't seen anybody say that about Peter. That would make for bad press if you criticize Peter on that. But um, uh, having analyzed some of their books, I think that their version of the gospel simply does not jibe with uh, Peter's message. And so first of all, let's look at what Peter's gospel message was not, and then we'll look at what it was. First, the message that Peter gives is not that people can be saved with or without the message of Christ. Uh, There are more and more universalist uh, websites that are popping up on the web that are saying that redemption of Christ is going to save everybody in the world, including demons, some of them say, but most of them just say in the world. And there are evangelicals who are buying into this. And this has really distressed me in recent years. Two of the arguments come from this chapter. Uh, First, they say in verses 11 through 15, Peter is commanded by God not to call any man unclean. So they say that means that everyone in the worldwide has been washed in the blood of Christ, is saved, and so the goal of missions is to tell people that they're already saved, not to try to get them saved. And Schuler preaches this gospel of self-esteem. A second argument that they give is the phrase in verse 34, God shows no partiality. And they say that means that everyone is saved because if that wasn't the case... God would be showing partiality to one person by saving him and discriminating against another person by not saving him. Obviously, they've got stronger arguments from other portions of Scripture than that. I think you can see right through those two arguments. But some of their arguments have been so convincing that many evangelicals, including people that I know in this city, have been buying into this, saying that there is no hell, that uh, the redemption of Christ uh, reconciles everyone to God. And if you've done much web searching, you've probably already run across some of those articles, and I don't want you to be sucked in by them. I think that Peter's message is a wonderful corrective to this notion. First, Peter had to open his mouth and preach the gospel before these people would be saved. Verse 34 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Now why would he have to do that if people are already saved? Why bother Well, the reason he had to bother is because the angel told Cornelius he had to go listen to Peter and it was through listening to Peter those words would save him and his household. Uh, When I preached on verses 1-8, through I think I very clearly demonstrated that they were not yet saved at this point. But just by way of reminder, take a look at uh, chapter 11 and verse 14. These are the words that are being remembered that the angel had told Cornelius. It says, the angel says about Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Well, if you put those two verses together, you see that God did not save them apart from hearing the preaching of the word of God that came from the mouth of Peter. It was necessary for their salvation. Second, look at verses 40 through 41. It says him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. I think it's significant that it says that God chose not to reveal the the gospel to everyone. In other words, it's not a general revelation that the gospel is given by. And God didn't send angels to preach it to everyone. And even the dreams and visions you see in Acts weren't a preaching of the gospel. They may be pointing a person to a preacher who would preach the gospel. But God sent the weakness of preaching in order to draw people to a saving knowledge of himself. Uh, I've run across a number of evangelicals in the last few years who have told me that if missionaries had not gone to Africa, well, God would have used some other means in which to save these people. Uh, dreams, visions, some other thing. But Romans 10 makes it very clear where Paul says, if there is no preacher sent, how can they believe? Okay, Acts 11.14 says the same thing. And then finally, verse 43 says, it is through Christ's name and belief in Christ that anyone will be saved. And so the debate that's going on in some denominations, whether there can be salvation through other religions, you know, is so clearly disproved. It just amazes me that evangelicals sometimes waver on that subject. Let's look at a second major error. The message of Peter was not a message of lawless grace. Verse 35 says, But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. I think this is a very important corrective to a defective gospel that many people preach. Many people have a good news of salvation from hell, but they do not have a good news of salvation from their sin. It kind of reminds me of a story I told Rodney on Friday um, Friday night, there was a missionary in Africa who uh, was not making a whole lot of success in preaching the gospel at that point, but he was trying to set up house and and clear an airstrip and whatnot, and he was hiring people to work for him, but they were just lazy. He just could not get them to work. And when he was around, they would work. As soon as he'd leave, they'd be off doing their own thing. Well, this missionary had a glass eye and uh, he popped it out, and the people were just horrified. They wondered, what kind of a guy is this anyway? And he stuck it on a stump, and he says, you guys better work hard. I'll be watching you. And he took <laughs> off. <laughs> and it worked for a day or two, but one day he came back to the site where they were at, and they'd stuck a tin can over top of the yeah. eye, <laughs> and they weren't working. And I sometimes wonder if that's the way people see the gospel. You know, it gets us saved, we're all okay, and God no longer notices, and He doesn't really care. We can go back to the old way of living and be comfortable in our sins. And so, I want to make some clarifications on this verse so that there's not any misunderstanding. The first thing I think is very important to understand is that verse 35 is not contradicting verse 43. Those harmonize. Well, obviously they harmonize because it's inspired, right? But Peter's not an idiot who's contradicting himself in the same paragraph. Verse 43 indicates that the only way we can be justified is by faith alone through Christ alone. Grace cannot be earned. Justification cannot be earned. Justification, in fact, is our only security. It is our acceptance before God. We can never lose it. Okay. Once we are justified, we are secure in our relationship with Him. In fact, it's justification that gives us a knowledge and understanding of justification that gives our sanctification joy. Otherwise, it would be a grin and bear it kind of a thing, wondering you know, where are we going to be? Are we secure or not? And so justification takes us out of a relationship where we have to face a judge. We no longer have to face the judge again and puts us into a relationship with a father. Very, very important. And yet, verse 35 is just as clear that law-keeping people are accepted by God. How do we reconcile those verses? Well, you can't reconcile them by ignoring one or the other of the two verses. They're both important. First thing I want you to notice is that this verse does not say whoever fears him and works righteousness will be accepted by him as if it was in the future tense. If it said that, then I think we'd have to say that, yeah, it's clear that we're earning our justification. We're earning our salvation. Because it would be our works preceding our acceptance. But it does not say that. Let me give you the Greek. Fears him, the words fears him, is a participle that can act as a noun. And the same is true of works righteousness. So literally it is the fearing him one and the working righteousness one is accepted. Now those partic- participles indicate that there's an ongoing character into this person that enables him to be described as a fearer, as a worker of righteousness. Uh, the next verb is the verb is, and that is in the present tense. And so the meaning of the Greek And you can see it in the English, too, once you understand the Greek. The meaning of the Greek is any time you find a person who truly fears God, who truly works righteousness, he already is accepted by God. Okay, that word is, I think, is is very important there. He already is justified. No one can be an accepted person. No one, I should say, but an accepted person could have this kind of personal transformation. And so, in effect, what this is, is that verse 35 is the goal and it is the result of the justification that is talked about in verse 43. Okay? At any given point where there is fear, there's working of righteousness, this person already is accepted by God. So there's no contradiction. Uh, circle that word is. Now, On the other hand, we can't just stop and say, great, it's reconciled. We don't need to uh, pay any attention to this verse because this verse really is an important corrective as well. It is crystal clear in this verse that law-keeping is not an option. Now, your outlines <laughs> say the exact opposite there. I left out the word not. It should say uh, that it does not make law-keeping an option. Okay, it is law keepers and only law keepers who are accepted by God. Or another way of saying it is, all those who are accepted by God are law keepers. Paul words it in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and those are key words there, if by the Spirit you put to death the deep misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, the Reformers pointed out that holiness is not an option. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, Perseverance is acknowledged by Calvinian divines to be necessary to salvation. Jerry Bridges said, It is not those who profess to know God who will enter heaven, but those whose lives are holy. And he appeals to Matthew uh, 7, verse 21, and a number of other scriptures. Now, another way of saying this is that the five points of Calvinism all presuppose one another. They all hang together or fall together. And so, everyone who is saved will persevere. That's the fifth point of Calvinism. And if you're not persevering, it indicates you have never been saved. Uh, Titus 1.16 describes such people in these words. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. You see, the good news is not simply that we are saved from hell. The good news is that we are being saved from our sins. In fact, the very first mention of the Gospel in the New Testament is in Matthew 1.21. Which says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save, he will save his people from their sins. Now that is indeed good news. When a person is found in bondage to sin, uh, unable to overcome the power of sin, to know that he is saving us from our sins, not just from hell, is an incredibly uh, good news gospel. And so verse 36 makes it clear holiness is not an option. The good news is is that God's grace will make those accepted into lawkeepers. Now there's another clarification that we need to make. Notice that verse 35 does not say that such people who are accepted lawkeepers are perfect lawkeepers. Doesn't say that. It doesn't say the perfect are accepted by God. Instead it says those who work righteousness. Now, that participle indicates that it's a characteristic of life. Because the Holy Spirit is now indwelling me, what is happening is that this person, the Holy Spirit motivates me to fight against sin and to work righteousness. And so the question is not, am I perfect? The question is, am I working at it? And here's what Jerry Bridges says. God does not require a perfect, sinless life, but He does require that we be serious about our holiness that we grieve over our sin in our lives instead of justifying it, and that we earnestly pursue holiness as a way of life. As 1 Thessalonians 4.7 says, God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. And thus we can see that the gospel is not only concerned about making us accepted in the beloved, justification, that's verse 43, it's also concerned with God changing the ones who are accepted. That's verse 35. And uh, uh, it's very good news. Romans 8.3 indicates that grace can accomplish what the law could not do. The law is powerless uh, to do that, but grace does accomplish it. Another observation on this verse is that grace changes not only what we do outwardly, it changes how we think inwardly. It is transformational. Uh, the words fears him deals with the inward heart. The words works righteousness talks about the overflow of the heart into our actions. <clears throat> Here's how Paul worded it in Philippians 2.13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We need to ask, Is my view of the Gospel uh, have that in it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a lot of views out there that do not. Uh, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the good part. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now, the willing is the inward, the doing is the outward. And all of that is an essential part of the good news of the gospel. Now, because this has been distorted so badly over the last 50 years by fundamentalists and uh, uh, Neo-evangelicals and neo-orthodox and uh, dispensationalists and a number of others. What I want to do is I want to try to clarify as clear as I can the distinctions: what the law can do and what the law cannot do. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's friend, uh, once said, "Nothing can be stated so perfectly as not to be misunderstood." He was saying, it doesn't matter how clearly you state the thing, there's going to be somebody who will misunderstand. I'm sure people think I maybe misunderstood them, but at least we need to try to understand these issues. And so I'm going to make a number of contrasts. What can the law accomplish? What can grace accomplish? And in the process, we'll see that while the law cannot save, grace is not lawless. First, while law cannot justify sinners, the grace of the gospel saves sinners from lawlessness. Let me read a couple of verses. Acts 13, verse 39 says, By him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law can't justify us. The only thing the law can do is expose your sin. Show what a miserable, dirty, rotten sinner you are. Right? Uh, It doesn't stop us from being lawless. Romans Romans 3, verse 20 words it this way. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But where law can't do anything but expose our lawlessness, grace saves us from our lawlessness. Let me read you an example. First John 3, 4-5 through 5 says, Whoever commits sin... Also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. Matthew one twenty one, Matthew 7.23, Matthew 13.41, there's many other Scriptures indicate Christ came to save us from lawlessness. Titus 2.14 says Jesus, quote, gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people zealous for good works. And so I think it's very important that we understand grace is not the opposite of law. Some people think they're polar opposites. They are not opposites at all. The opposite of grace is self-endeavor, fleshly endeavor. Grace is the only means by which we can be law keepers. Now turn with me to Romans 3 and we'll look at a second contrast. And we're going to start at Romans 3 verse 28, which is an important verse to memorize, I think, because it deals with justification by faith alone. Romans 3 verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, faith apart from the deeds of the law is faith alone, right? That's where Luther gets his idea. It's faith alone. And it's an incredibly important doctrine because we don't have any comfort uh, apart from that doctrine. But it's only part of the truth. Look at verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Now, that's the conclusion some people jump to, but not Paul. Verse 31 goes on to say, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. I think it's very important when we're developing systematic theology, and this is a danger of systematic theology, that we not pick and choose verses and ignore the context in which those verses occur. What Paul was doing is he's trying to beat off on the one hand any idea that we can be justified by our works, by our trying to be conformed to the law of God, But on the other side, he wants to indicate that when we have faith, we establish the law. Why? Because faith lays hold of grace and grace is not lawless. See that? Faith lays hold of grace and grace is not lawless. So the gospel of sola fide, which is faith alone, is a gospel that establishes the law according to Paul. We keep the law as accepted, secure people, but we do indeed seek to keep it. Now, turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at a third contrast. Some people make, I think they misunderstand freedom, but they make freedom that God has purchased for us or the liberty that God has purchased for us as something that enables us to be happy even when we are in the midst of our bondage. And I think it's a misunderstanding. There is no liberty in that. They conclude there can be no obligation upon the saint who is free. They say that freedom is not freedom unless it is freedom to do whatever we want. Let me just give you a quote. Uh, Steve Brown has written a number of good things, but I think he's dead wrong on this issue. Let me just give you some quotes. In his book, Scandalous Freedom, page 7, he says, Many of us say as Christians, of course, we're free. But that doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want. And then he comments, but if we aren't free to do what we want, then we aren't really free. Or if we are, it's a weird sort of freedom. And on the contrary, I would say that his definition of freedom throughout that book and his other books is an Arminian definition of freedom to the core. It is Arminian to the core. On the next page, he says, some reveal their flight from freedom in the comment, of course, we're free. That doesn't mean we're free to sin. It means we're free not to sin. That sounds so very spiritual, and I believe there is something to it. Still, if that freedom doesn't include the freedom not to obey, then it isn't real freedom. Now, he's a a master with words, but I think if you analyze his uh, discussion of freedom, you'll see it's not biblical. It's not Pauline. It's certainly not Reformed. Let's start at verse eighteen, Romans 6, verse 18. And having been set free from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. And we're examining the usage of the term freedom. How does Paul use it? And here we can see it's not an absolute freedom. This is a very logical statement that he has made. Uh, Just think about it this way. If we've been freed from sin and sin is lawlessness, then we've been freed from lawlessness, right? How can we say if we're freed from lawlessness that we're free to be lawless? doesn't make any sense. And so Paul is perfectly logical when he makes the next step and is saying, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And again, notice how he's using the term freedom. It's free from one thing, but not freedom from another. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. See, we can praise God that He saved us from death. Yes, He saved us from the curse of the law. Absolutely, yes. Uh, He has brought us into liberty. Yes, but liberty does not mean we can do anything that we want. It means that we can do what we were created for. Here's how Psalm 119.45 words it. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will walk at liberty because I seek your precepts. <clears throat> what he is saying there is the only way we can have liberty is as we walk in the law by God's grace. We walk in the perfect law of liberty, as James uh, refers to it. Now, there is a sense in which railroad tracks are slavery for a train. OK, uh, and yet is a kind of slavery that is liberating. Right. It gives that train liberty and power and speed. But there is another kind of slavery, and that's when it's derailed and it's in the mud. And so, in a sense, we are like the train that has been freed from slavery to mud into slavery for the railroad tracks for which it was designed. That gives it the maximum liberty. And in the same way, the good news of the gospel is that we have been saved from bondage to sin so that we could now walk in the liberty of the perfect law of liberty. So, once again, the law of the grace is not lawless. A fourth contrast is that while law without grace condemns us, and it is burdensome, and it's just a, a, a misery to keep, the true gospel of grace enables the sinner to find joy and satisfaction in God's law. In fact, in 1 John, uh, you read through that, and you'll see that John says the things he is writing about holiness are that your joy may be full. Um, Pastor Glenn, a few weeks ago, was preaching from Psalm 19. And Psalm 19.8 says the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, rejoicing the heart. That's what God's laws do. This is why David said, oh, how I love your law. Now, there are teachers out there that try to make the law the enemy of the Christian. It is not the enemy of the Christian. The only one that the law is the enemy of is those who are outside of Christ and who are outside of grace. Why? Because it condemns them. It is an enemy to those people. But grace is not lawless. It causes us to delight in the law. A fifth contrast is that while we are not under the covenant of law, and I think it's important that we understand that, we are not under the covenant of the law in Adam. We're under a new covenant. It's also important to realize that that new covenant is not lawless. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 21 says, Not being without law toward God but under law toward Christ. You see, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us as sinners. And the solution isn't to try harder because we've got a problem. We, we can't do any better uh, by ourselves. The solution is to be in Christ, receive grace from Christ, and keep the law through Christ. The person who has been accepted by God is a person who is being accepted conformed to the image of Christ by his power. And I've spent a lot of time on this because this is the point that is most under attack in America. And most of the sermons directed against non-reformed people. But there are uh, reformed uh, people as well who are antinomians. Now, Steve Brown absolutely insists that he is not an antinomian. But I've read just about all of his books and listened to many of his sermons, and it seems like that's the irresistible direction that it's going. And sometimes he seems to almost acknowledge that. Here's what he says in his book, When Being Good Isn't Enough. Now, here's something very important. While the Apostle Paul was not antinomian, he was very close to it. And it just shocks me when he can say stuff like this. He says, Paul would never have had to write a defense of his teaching on freedom if he had not been very close to heresy. That brings me to a syllogism with two premises and a conclusion. Premise, the real Christian faith is close to antinomianism. Premise, a lot of modern day Christianity is not at all close to antinomianism. Conclusion, a lot of modern day Christianity is not real Christianity. But we have seen that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not even remotely close to being a lawless grace. Not close at all. It establishes the law. It motivates us to holiness. It empowers us for holiness. And it does not leave us, as some of Steve's writings seem to imply at times, uh, leave us in bondage, but feeling better about that bondage. And so let me read subpoint point six to sum up. In summary, grace makes no sense if there is no law. Romans 5, 20 through 21. It is law that necessitates grace, verse 20, and grace that enables law keeping, verse 21. A lawless grace is not good news because it never rescues us from bondage to sin. The Bible states that, quote, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, Titus 2, verses 11 through 12. So can you see that the the grace of God is not lawless. Let me just read that verse one more time and then we'll move on. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Now, verse 36 corrects a third error in the church. It's the error that says that Christ's lordship is optional. It's the carnal Christian theory. In a sense, it's related to the previous point. But these people divide Christians up into two classes. There are carnal Christians and there are spiritual Christians. And they teach that while you have to receive Christ as Savior in order to be saved, it's optional whether you receive Him as Lord. This verse says He is Lord. Okay? He's the Lord of everyone. The only question is, are we going to submit or are we going to rebel against His Lordship? But... We don't make him Lord of our lives. He is Lord whether we like it or not. Look at the last phrase of verse 36. He is Lord of all. Now, that declaration is part of the gospel message of Peter. This group of people also insist that repentance is only for the Jews. It's not for the Gentiles. And sometimes when people tell me this, it almost takes my breath away. That people can, with a straight face, make those statements when there are so many scriptures that call Gentiles to repentance. Just take a look at chapter 11 and verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life, not just the Jews who need to submit. And Acts 10.36 appeals to Christ's message that was preached to Israel. And what was his message? Over and over again, uh, the, uh, the gospel message was a call to repentance. For example, Mark 14, uh, 1.14, repent and believe the gospel. And so there's no indication whatsoever that his lordship is optional. Here's what John MacArthur said so well. We do not make Christ Lord. He is Lord. Those who will not receive him as Lord are guilty of rejecting him. Faith that rejects his sovereign authority is really unbelief. Conversely, acknowledging his lordship is no more a human work than repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25, or faith itself, Ephesians 2.8-9. In fact, surrender to Christ is an important aspect of divinely produced saving faith, not something added to faith. No promise of salvation is ever extended to those who refuse to accede to Christ's lordship. Thus, there is no salvation except lordship salvation. No one who comes for salvation with genuine faith, sincerely believing that Jesus is the eternal, Almighty, Sovereign God, will willfully reject His authority. True faith is not lip service. Our Lord Himself pronounced condemnation on those who worshipped Him with their lips but not with their lives. Matthew fifteen seven through nine. He does not become anyone's Savior till that person receives Him for who He is, Lord of all. And one more quote. This is from A. W. Tozer. The Lord will not save those whom He cannot command. He will not divide His offices. You cannot believe in a half-Christ. We take Him for what He is, the anointed Savior and Lord who is King of kings and Lord of all lords. He would not be who He is if He saved us and called us and chose us without understanding that He can also guide and control our lives. And I say amen. The non-lordship gospel is another gospel. The fourth error is also dispensationalist in origin. Uh, point four says, the message of Peter was not a message that fits the gospel of the kingdom, which they believe was before the cross, against the gospel of grace, as if it came after the cross. Instead, what you find in this passage here is that he appeals to the preaching of Jesus, which was the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, and he ties it right in with his own gospel message. Let's read that. Verses 36 through 42. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is that he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him. All the prophets witness through his name. Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now, you could not get a more devastating critique than that brand. Not all dispensationalists believe that, but that brand of dispensationalism. These people insist the gospel of grace is only for the church. The gospel of the kingdom is only for Israel. But all the way through, you find the exact opposite. Uh, Just one example. Acts chapter 20. This is the only place where the gospel of grace, that phrase, occurs in the Bible. And here's how it's worded. Acts 20, 24 through 25. And, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, is that gospel of grace different from the kingdom? No, it's not. Look at the next verse. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. And so for Paul, preaching the gospel is preaching the kingdom. And I've given several other verses that show that the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the grace are identical. Fifth, the message of Peter was not a gospel that was different from that preached in the Old Testament. Uh, Verse 43 is quite clear. To him, all the prophets witness. That through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. The Old Testament, he is saying, proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. And any view of the gospel that you can't find in the Old Testament is a false gospel. It is not the gospel that they preached. Hebrews 4 verse 2 speaks about the first generation under Moses. And it says, for indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So same gospel. And you read in some of the different books that have been written about the gospel. And you try to take that and find it in the Old Testament. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it there. Sixth, the message of Peter was not the gospel preached by Romanists or legalists. Uh, Verse 43 gives the means of receiving forgiveness of sins and becoming a Christian. It says, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. Peter's message is that forgiveness comes through faith alone, that it's received, not earned, and that it's remitted or forgiven, not that it's compensated for. And even with us as evangelicals, it's so easy for us, when we understand the Gospel, start going over when we've blown it to feel like we've got to earn God's forgiveness. Well, that's the flesh speaking. Uh, we cannot ever earn God's forgiveness. Uh, The flesh can contribute nothing. But those who are forgiven, what they do is they receive grace from on high. And by that grace, once again, they get up, secure in their relationship with Him, and they strive for the upward call that they have in Christ Jesus. Now, this, this is such a great summary of the gospel, what Peter gives here that um, I thought I'd just quickly go through what the gospel is so that we don't leave anything out. And I've put this into an outline form so you don't have to write like mad. I'm just going to read through and only occasionally briefly comment. First, it's a message according to verse 34. Gospel means good news. It's something we've got to tell people. It's a message. We've got to communicate. Second, it's good news to everyone, as verse 34 words it, without partiality. There is no caste system in the gospel. It's the same message for Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female, uh, high caste, low caste, uh, you know, gutter sinner, sophisticated sinner. It really doesn't matter. God's grace levels the playing field by making us all equally unworthy and equally exalted in Christ. There was a hardened criminal in England in the 1800s who became converted in prison and his life was just very rapidly being transformed by the the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he got out, he started attending an Anglican church. And at one of the communions, he was side by side with the judge who sentenced him to prison. He didn't recognize the judge, but the judge recognized him. And... Uh, After the service, the judge talked to the pastor and he said, did you know who that was? And he described what the situation was. And he says, I really find this quite remarkable. And the pastor says, what, that that man was converted? And he said, no, I find it quite remarkable that God's grace could make an upright, successful, self-disciplined person like me recognize that I am as bad a sinner as that man was and as much in need of God's grace as that man was. He says, that is the miracle that God has wrought in my life. It's good news to everyone. Third, verse 35 indicates it's good news to those who feel helpless with their sins because why? It guarantees God's grace can make us fear, can make us workers of righteousness. Victory is possible. And then the participles that describe fearing one and the righteous working one indicate that this is good news, not just at the beginning of our Christian life, but throughout our Christian life. It it continues to transform us. Contrary to four point Calvinism, it's good news in which Father, Son and Holy Spirit are united. Uh, Four point uh, Calvinism uh, has said that there are the Father, Son and Holy Spirit have differing had differing desires as to who would be saved. Uh, one elects only certain people. Another dies for all. And the Spirit applies to those who are receptive and to those who uh, you know, believe in the Gospel. But this passage indicates, no, there's a perfect unity of purpose and will between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, none of you are four-point Calvinists, so I don't need to develop that further. But sixth, it is good news that gives us peace. Verse 36 speaks of preaching peace Through Jesus Christ. So it's God's favor. We're not at peace with the world. We're not at peace with the devil. But we are at peace with God, both objectively as well as subjectively. Uh, Seven, this peace can only be found in Jesus Christ, verse 36. Eight, it is good news that makes us submit to his lordship, verse 36. Nine, the good news was preached by Jesus. And any theory of the gospel that cannot be found in the gospel accounts is a false gospel. And I threw that in there because some people take Paul's statements so out of context, sometimes out of the immediate context even, that if you took their view of the gospel, you would not be able to find it, ironically, in the books that are called the gospels. You wouldn't be able to find it on the lips of Christ. And ten, the good news that Jesus preached included more than simply redemption of the soul says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So it includes empowering by the Holy Spirit. That's in the gospel. It includes healing. It includes breaking the bondage of Satan. In fact, the good news of the gospel is so comprehensive according to Romans 8 that includes eventually the restoration of the new heavens and of a new earth as the hymn Joy to the World puts it, His blessings flow far as the curse is found. So it doesn't just stop with justification. That's where some people stop. But it goes on to sanctification, resurrection, glorification, transformation of cultures. And yet many books tell you how to get in, but they don't tell you how to use the gospel the rest of your life. Now, obviously, the good news includes the perfect life of Christ because apart from His righteousness being imputed to us, we, can't, uh, we cannot be saved. It includes His death because He had to become a curse. He had to be punished in our stead. 13, the good news includes the resurrection of Jesus into a real body. 1 Corinthians 15 indicates that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are lost in our sins. We are hopeless. There is no way that we can be saved. And so when hyperpreterists mess around with the doctrine of the resurrection, what they're doing is they're messing around with the gospel. And Christ's resurrection guarantees power for us. It says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in those who believe. Paul's longing in life was that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And even our bodies are conformable to His death. Verses 40-42 through 42 indicate that the apostles were united on the gospel. There are many people who are only interested in Pauline gospel. And I wonder, what's a Pauline gospel? What's a Pauline theology? It's God's theology. They're all united. The Old Testament is even united on the gospel. And so it's not different than James or Peter's. And we have misunderstood the gospel if we cannot find the gospel in the epistles of James and Peter and John. And many people can't. And we've already dealt with point 15. There's no other way of salvation than through Jesus. Point 16. The good news includes the ascension of Jesus to his position as judge of the living and the dead. Now, some views of the gospel feel that judgment is inconsistent with with, uh, the gospel. Condemnation is inconsistent. Yet Jesus said, I am the rock of offense. And he himself said, anybody who stumbles on that rock will be crushed. See, what the gospel says is Jesus bears the judgment for those who are in him. And he dishes out the judgment for those who are not in him, those who are lawbreakers. And so he never ceases to be judge. And uh, those who feel, you know, we just have to be positive, we cannot be critical, need to examine. How much of the Bible dealt with correction of error? It's about four fifths of the Bible. About four-fifths. I've already mentioned point 17. If verse 43 says the prophets taught the gospel, then we should be able to find the gospel in the Old Testament. Point 18, verse 43 indicates that good news is that faith in Jesus remits sins. To Him, all the prophets witness that through His name, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. And so first of all, the gospel means that we can have nothing apart from the name of Jesus. Our identity is in Him. Our security is in Him. Uh, we have to sign our checks, you know, that we're banking on the bank of heaven in His name. We have to pray in His name. Everything comes through the name of Christ, and it comes by faith on the merits of Christ. And so Peter has summed up, really, I believe, the genius of the Reformation as a whole. And if there are any who have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted Him for forgiveness of sins, you need to do that because that is our only hope of redemption from uh, hellfire. His forgiveness is free. His forgiveness is full. And what it does is it ushers us in to a life of fellowship with Him. Having been cleansed by His grace, then what we need to do is we need to continue by His grace to seek to be holy. The gospel doesn't just stop with justification. don't strive in your own flesh. Galatians 3 says that having begun by the Spirit, we can't think we're going to be made mature by our flesh. Everything is of grace. And so keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because He is the author and finisher of our faith. From beginning to end, the gospel is Jesus. Let me just end with one last verse. It's Isaiah Chapter 48, verses 17 through 18. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Let's pray. Father God, it is our desire that we would enter more and more fully into the grace and the good news that Jesus Christ brought to us, that he has purchased for us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, Father, help us to uh, repent of our dependence on our own strength, of our own fleshly endeavors. And by your grace, I pray that you would sanctify uh, your people. We thank you that salvation that begins in justification uh, will irresistibly conclude in our glorification, our resurrection. And we bless you, Father, for the security that we have. And I pray that you would not only encourage our hearts, but give to us that zeal that you talk about in Titus 2, where Christ died to redeem us uh, as his own special people, zealous for good works. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.